You're listening to Campus Review Radio. I want to start by acknowledging that we're meeting on the land of the Ngunnawal people and to pay my respects to their elders past and present. I want to extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in attendance today and I want to take the opportunity of congratulating UA and the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Higher Education Consortium on the release of the Indigenous strategy last night. Thanks very much in particular to Professor Peter Buckskin and Professor Eileen Morton Robinson, Professor Steve Larkin and Dr Leanne Holt for their work on this strategy. Giving more Indigenous Australians the opportunity to go to university and to get a decent, well-paid job is absolutely fundamental to breaking the cycle of Indigenous disadvantage and to closing the gap. And I want to thank all of you for doing your part in that. I also want to acknowledge Professor Barney Glover, the Chair of Universities Australia, Professor Margaret Gardner, AO, Chair-Elect of Universities Australia, Belinda Robinson, Chief Executive of Universities Australia, Vice-Chancellors, University staff and students from across Australia. I particularly want to make uh, mention of the work that Belinda and UA's staff have done in putting together this very significant event. Well, I've had a warm welcome from all of you as Shadow Minister, starting with my very first discussion with Vice-Chancellors in August last year. I've very much enjoyed the many campus visits I've made and I'm looking forward to many more. It's inspiring for me to see the transformative power of universities at work, transforming the lives of individual students, our communities and our regions, and of course, our economy as a whole. For individual students, we know that a university education usually means a lifetime of higher earnings. Uh, it usually also means exposure to the other things that make life rich. Friendship, mobility, creative thinking, lifelong learning. And society is richer because you challenge us with new ideas, you shape debates, you foster creativity. It's a tribute to so many of you in this room that we have an international education sector, which is the envy of the world. The export value of the sector is a testament to the quality of the Australian education system. Regional cities are seeing new generation, a new generation of urban renewal through economic benefits of higher education delivery and the infrastructure investment that it supports. Take, for example, the city of Launceston, which is actually one of my favourite cities in Australia. Uh, think of how Launceston will be transformed by a $260 million development at the Inveres campus. To Launceston, this project means $965 million in direct and indirect economic benefit during construction. It means 2,760 new jobs and $362 million in additional ongoing annual economic activity. In addition to the economic impact, the campus will see about 16,000 staff and students bringing even more energy and creativity to a terrific city. Universities are transforming many of our cities. If you look at regional cities like Newcastle and Wollongong, which were once reliant on heavy industries, they're being revitalised through the presence of university campuses. 
I know that you'll uh, later today have Antoine Uchtmal and Fred Bucker, authors of The Smartest Place on Earth, Why Rust Belts Are Emerging Hotspots of Global Innovation, uh, presenting to this conference. And I very much enjoyed listening to them speaking on the radio yesterday morning. Their research on the revival of cities and regions once in decline is fascinating. The message, I think, is a very clear and very important one for this conference. The future doesn't lie in the rearview mirror. If we want to be a leading edge competitive economy, we need to have a vision for the future and drive the creation of new high-tech manufacturing and the decent, well-paid jobs that will go with it. And it doesn't happen through wishful thinking. We have to have new and practical approaches that forge connections and collaboration between universities, governments, companies and industry. Not the least because the important breakthroughs in technology and innovation will almost certainly, uh, as these researchers said, occur at the intersection of various disciplines. This is why the theme of this year's conference, Gen Next, is so important. I remember when it was my generation, Generation X, that was perplexing policymakers with our poor job prospects and the likelihood of a future of insecure work. We still live in interesting and uncertain times. And if anything, the, the threat of insecurity and the pace of change has increased. Gen Next will have the task of steering us through a new industrial revolution, a technology revolution that many fear will cost jobs and uh, will make sure, uh, and, and we need to make sure, that uh, instead of costing jobs, these new technologies create new industries and bring new jobs with them. It's fair to say that many people are anxious about the future. Parents and grandparents wonder what type of work their children and grandchildren will do, how they will succeed in this new economy. Universities are at the forefront of our future success to ensure that our nation has the skills and the knowledge it needs to be competitive and resilient, and that our young people have the skills and the knowledge that they need to succeed. As Professor Glover said yesterday, as institutions for the public good, we exist to pursue the frontiers of knowledge. Knowledge is the ballast against that insecurity that many people feel. Knowledge is essential for policymakers and for governments to govern well. If we are very clever as a nation, we have the opportunity to deal with some of these great problems of our time. Climate change is just one example. Australian universities are facing this challenge head on. Research at UNSW is just one example, and it's one that I've been able to visit myself a number of times. The University's Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics recently set a new world record for energy efficiency. It's breakthroughs like this that will underpin our future prosperity if we are able to properly harness them. But unless we look more broadly to reform, it's not that the, the, the future's not all bright for Australia. We have to face the facts. 
the construction phase of the mining boom is over and our economy is in transition. I don't think anybody is arguing that that's not the case. Growth is slow, wages are low, underemployment is high. Parts of Australia are suffering much more than others and policymakers have a responsibility to make sure that all Australians uh, are included in our plans for future prosperity. So after a 25 year run of economic growth, are we up for this challenge? Can we transition from a resources boom to a knowledge-based services economy? Will we be able to leverage our knowledge, creativity and innovation into new ideas for new products, new services and growing industries? To do this successfully, I think um, there's a few things we need to do. The first is to ensure we have a continuous upgrading of skills for the changing nature of work. And secondly, to boost our nation's research outcomes to capture a greater value of our creativity and innovation. It's no surprise to any of you that the Labor Party supports full employment. But we know that that's much easier said than done. Last year, Australia lost 56,000 full-time jobs. Wages are stagnant or falling, down half a percent in the last quarter of last year alone. Underemployment is at record highs and the gap between rich and poor is the worst that it's been for 75 years. Over coming decades, many jobs will go and new ones will emerge. Existing occupations will also require new skills. In 2015, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia reported that up to 40% of Australian jobs, more than 5 million, could be gone in 10 to 15 years' time. Most of this will be because of technological change. It's also said that more than uh, a million workers change jobs every year in Australia, about a tenth of the workforce. Of these million workers, 600,000 change industry and around 450,000 change occupation. So it's not just individual workers, it's also businesses. Uh, we see more than half a million businesses enter or exit the marketplace each year. In the decade to 2013-14, Australian manufacturing jobs decreased by around 92,000, while employment in healthcare and social services increased by 462,000. Our economy's skill base continues to change significantly. Unless we plan to make it otherwise, there is a genuine risk that these new jobs will be of a lower quality than the ones they have replaced. In a potentially more volatile labour market, will our post-secondary <coughs> system, both universities and TAFE, adapt to this change? Governments can't come up with the answers to these big issues alone. Universities also need to wrestle profoundly with this question. When, when we were last in government, 
you all know that we introduced the demand-driven system for undergraduate places, and in doing so, we gave universities a new level of freedom. This has seen the sector innovate, delivering more education to more Australians, many of whom have been the first in their family to attend university, uh, or they've been from a disadvantaged background, indigenous background, regional background, Labor's demand-driven funding has allowed the unmet need or demand that existed in the Howard years to be filled, but that initial spike is levelling out. Data from the Department of Education suggests that demand for university places from school leavers has begun to plateau. But the reform of the demand-driven system is probably at best only half done. I envisage a more mature demand-driven system able to increase participation by people from disadvantaged backgrounds. You know that we have more work to do in this area. And that's why I was so delighted to see UA's commitment to accelerating Indigenous student enrolments by 50% above overall growth as part of the Indigenous strategy. That's also why I've been so critical of the Turnbull government's slashing of the Higher Education Participation and Partnerships Program with 40% of its funding already cut and the remainder of the funding under consideration. At the core of the demand-driven system has been flexibility. I, I want you to have that flexibility. I want our universities to have the funding and regulatory settings that allow you to deliver education which meets people's life goals and enhances their life experience. But we have to look at how a mature demand-driven system adapts to these changes in the economy that I've been describing, changes in the economy and the labour market. With one-fifth of the workforce, uh, um, one-tenth of the workforce changing jobs every year and 40% of current jobs predicted to be gone within 10 to 15 years, we've got some big changes ahead of us. It's no good educating young Australians for yesterday's labour market or for jobs that don't exist. What new programs of university and vocational education do we need? Consider also a mid-career worker trying to renew their skills for a new or emerging industry. What kind of higher education option do they need? Will these be available? Will universities recognise their previous work experience or their TAFE qualifications? Universities and vocational education and training providers will have to increase collaboration with each other and with industry so that uh, the right opportunities, there are the right opportunities for high quality work integrated learning and job placements. I'm also interested in changing the way that people engage with higher education throughout their working lives. The debate that we've seen about attainment rates I think has in many ways failed to recognise the way that our lives have changed. We absolutely Labor absolutely wants to see more students graduating from university. We don't want to see people dropping out because the course they're studying turns out to be irrelevant or not what they want or need. 
but we also don't want to penalise students who are taking a non-traditional approach to acquiring the skills that they need. The evidence tells us that there is value in having successfully completed some higher education, even when students don't graduate. A recent study on employment trends in the EU, published in Higher Education Quarterly, showed that even a small amount of higher education may improve a learner's life chances and increase their opportunities for employment. So we should be looking at how we all, government, industry, universities, are better able to respond to students who, for a variety of reasons, choose to step in and out of higher education throughout their working lives. Our system needs to continue to become more flexible in order to allow students to build their knowledge and skills base through a greater mix of educational offerings that fit with the needs of their lives and careers. It doesn't mean a system where every child wins a prize. Labor expects accountability to our students, to your local communities and to the Australian taxpayer. And a high flexibility system needs to continue to be a high quality system. But I don't think these aims are necessarily in conflict. Last month, Bill Shorten outlined that jobs and skills will be a major focus for Labor in, in this year and in this term of opposition. He also announced that we'll be holding a skills summit in Canberra on the 17th of March. And of course, we're very much looking forward to working with unions, with business representatives and educators, including Universities Australia, at this important summit. But it's also very important, I think, that Bill has identified our colleagues in the TAFE sector and the fact that they're going through a period of sustained stress and anxiety about their future. This government has ripped away $2.5 billion from skills and training and astonishing 128,000 apprenticeships and traineeships have now disappeared. Funding for vocational education has actually gone backwards by 4% in real terms over the last decade. In that same period, universities have had relative stability, relative stability, supported by our policy settings with funding increases of around 45%. So I say to you today that universities can't be aloof from the funding crisis faced by TAFE. It's an issue of national importance. We know that our economy needs decent, high-quality skills delivered at both the vocational and higher education levels. So we are determined to ensure that universities continue to grow, to be strong, with predictable and sustainable funding. But we want to work with the states and territories to ensure that similar stability is afforded to TAFE and to the vocational education sector. We also want to ensure that business and unions work collaboratively with educators, all of us playing our part. As the Shadow Minister responsible for university research, I'm also keenly focused on the policy settings, both current and future, that will facilitate a robust and growing research portfolio in our universities. 
In a mature and strong democracy, we need researchers, thought leaders, ideas generators. And we shouldn't be afraid of agitators who want to change the status quo. As the late, great Gough Whitlam said, academic freedom is the first requirement, the essential property of a free society. More than trade, more than strategic interests, more even than common systems of law or social or political structures, free and flourishing universities provide the true foundation of our Western kinship and define the true commonality of the democratic order. It's in that same spirit that I applaud the work of our university researchers. It wasn't really until I had the medical research portfolio as health minister that I think I fully appreciated the power of research to improve lives and underpin economic <coughs> growth. There's a tendency to think about research, um, the value of research in dollar terms of intellectual property and patents lodged. And these things are very important. They're critical to our success as a nation. But the value of research is much greater than that. Research, for example, that develops a less intrusive, less costly way to deliver a medical intervention won't make money for a drug company, it won't necessarily generate a valuable patent, but it can be uh, very much better for our health system, uh, the dollars that we spend in our health system. And most importantly, most importantly, it can have a terrific benefit for patients. Like the work of the SPACE project, the single pill to avert cardiovascular events that's led by researchers at the George Institute for Global Health. These researchers developed a polypill, a fixed dose combining commonly used blood pressure and cholesterol lowering medications along with aspirin. All of them off patent, not expensive molecules, very easy to mass produce. Um, this is transforming the way that we treat cardiovascular disease, uh, most particularly in poorer countries that don't have the same sort of dollars to put into their health system that we do here in Australia. This type of research for public benefit alone is very valuable. But we need to also think about how we take those uh, terrific um, discoveries uh, and innovations and inventions of our researchers to create new jobs and new opportunities. It's not good enough that Australia's research collaboration with business is almost at the bottom of the OECD average. It is the case that collaboration between industry and universities on research and development is too low for an advanced economy like Australia. Globally, Australia is missing out because of a lack of government-backed research collaboration funds. If we are to truly take part in developing the global products of the future, Australia must be at the table with similar countries, the United States, the United Kingdom, with the European Union. It's important, if not key, that industry plays a greater role in our overall research effort. But university research is absolutely critical to this picture too, and I know that it can't continue to flourish if funding continues to be cut. That's why Labor has been very strongly opposed to the short-sighted decision to abolish the education, in, uh, the education Investment Fund. 
all of you can think of examples of how this funding has benefited your institutions. EIF was set up to ensure that we had the necessary capital to renew, refurbish and update our university, vocational and research institutions. And this objective has now been abandoned. As part of our policy development, uh, I'll be continuing to talk with universities uh, and um, more broadly right across the sector to make sure that we are getting the most of the investment that we make uh, in our research dollars in university and across industry. And uh, of course I'll be meeting with the Deputy Vice-Chancellor's Research um, at their forum tomorrow. I'm optimistic about our capacity to meet Australia's future skills and research challenges. I'm determined to work with you to prepare our people for the secure jobs of the future. Developing skills for a changing workforce through to encouraging new scientific breakthroughs. Universities are going to be a central part of that challenge. But we need to continue the healthy process of connecting the elements of our education system better, feeding our economy with new discoveries and innovation. Thank you for your time today and I hope you enjoy the rest of your conference.